This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. I've said it before, ladies and gentlemen. I know it's going to be a good episode when the guest laughs at the intro. And today, (laughs) that's like a 100% hit rate. Good faith, fam. I mean, this episode has been literally years in the making. Our guest and I uh, met at a conference for no other reason than we just happened to sit next to each other during lunch. But from there, it was like totally intellectual love at first sight, at least on my end. I can't speak for our guest. Uh, But anyway, it turns out that he's one of the most interesting, eloquent public theologians out there and a leading mind among this new cadre of young thinkers of faith who are combining accessible content, excellent scholarship, and really innovative use of digital media to transform society for the better. He's a professor of theology at Baylor at the Institute for Studies of Religion, one of the hosts of the incredible Mere Fidelity podcast. He's Matt Anderson, and we're going to talk about doing theology for the wider society. But first, Uh, Let's set this up. So as you know, we've been talking lately about the book of Deuteronomy, which as far as understanding the American experiment goes, is absolutely crucial. It's the most cited work by far in political literature during the era of the American founding. So historian Donald Lutz actually calculated that between 1760 and 1805, it's actually cited just in political tracts alone, like not even counting sermons, nearly twice as much as all of John Locke's works put together, which makes sense in the macro sense because more than any other book of the Bible, Deuteronomy is a manual for building a virtuous society. But whereas most political philosophers have mined Deuteronomy for its wisdom on monarchy, the judiciary, the ethics of war, the nature of prophecy and social critique. So I want to call attention to a lesser known passage. It's in Deuteronomy 22, and it tells us that you can't take eggs to eat from a nest without sending the mother bird away first, meaning you can't capture the mother bird at the same time. And if you listen to God, if you send the mother bird away, the reward is it will go well with you and you will live long, which seems like the kind of thing we should be pursuing as a a society. So the question is why? Why send the mother bird away? Why is the reward for this behavior so great? And for millennia, theologians have been trying to figure this out with everyone from Maimonides to John Calvin trying their hand. And every answer I, I really do think has a portion of wisdom to it, but probably my favorite one is that offered by the remarkable Jewish scholar, poet, philosopher, Samuel David Luzzatto, who lived in Italy during the 19th century. So like basically five minutes ago in the context of Jewish history, but still. So Luzzatto, or Shadal, which is the Hebrew acronym by which he's affectionately known, argued that the way to understand this commandment is by posing a counterfactual. So what would happen if you came too close to a bird that was by itself, right, not near any eggs? Well, unless it's a pigeon in New York City, obviously it'd fly away. And yet, If you approach a mother bird closely, one that's in its nest, it won't fly away. Why not? Because its parental instinct lends it the fortitude to stand its ground, even as an animal. So this is an example in Shadal's view of encountering virtuous behavior, love, loyalty, courage in the wild. And though it's true that human needs take precedence over those of animals, we should train ourselves to respect virtue when we see it. And to the extent we can, we should reward it. And 
it seems to me that this is a pretty simple but crucial insight for thinking about the kind of society we want to have, the kind Deuteronomy wants us to build. We should want to recognize and encourage virtue. And now that's a lot more difficult than it sounds, because in practice, that often means choosing second best solutions. Like in the case of Deuteronomy, it's not like it's not like this is the mother bird's first choice, but that's okay. The Bible's moral vision for society is a constant push and pull between visionary aspiration on the one hand and a deep realism about the human condition on the other. So how do we do this in practice? How do we bring our deepest values and commitments to bear in and for the benefit of the public square? And how do we make good choices applying our values and virtues to those situations? So to unpack all of this, I brought on one of the most exciting young thinkers who's doing this at the highest possible level. He teaches theology at Baylor. He's a host of the absolutely awesome Mere Fidelity podcast, which I love. He writes a really good newsletter now on Substack called The Path Before Us, to which I am a paid subscriber, baby. He's my friend. The amazing Matt Anderson is here. Matt, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I have so many flashbacks to the first time that we met. I was laughing because <laughs> the overwhelming power and presence of Rabbi Ari Lam is just, you know, it's indomitable. It just like I can't deal with it without smiling. The joy is just overtakes me and I must respond in kind with joy and laughter. Like this is just how I feel. So it's my truth. Can't do otherwise. It's totally, totally mutual. So I actually want to start with just how I appreciate and love the Matt Anderson phenomenon, which is you're a you're a really excellent theologian. You are someone who takes theology really seriously as as the major part of what you're bringing to the public square. And I'll tell you from the perspective of, in my own case, as listeners know, Orthodox Jewish rabbi type. So I know well how I would approach the task of public theology uh, or how I would expect, you know, my teachers and mentors to ex to approach the task of public theology. I'd know the sources I'd want them to rely upon. I'd know the kind of methods that I expect them to use. And I think that the question that I get most often from people who listen to the podcast and are either not a member of my community and they're asking about me or they are a member of my community and they're asking about others is how does somebody who is different than me but who's doing public theology in a way that I admire, like, what's the method? So I'm curious about you as someone who cares about this. Like, how do you think about applying theology and thinking about the public square? Like, is it applying texts? Is it starting from first principles? Like, how does it work? Like, in my case, you'd start, you know, you'd start with the Bible and the Talmud, and then you would reason from there to the medievals. Like, how do you think about doing this? Yeah, that's that's I'm trying to decide whether that's an easier or harder question than the Deuteronomy 22 <laughs> question, because the Deuteronomy 22 setup was making me think I was going to have to wait in on that. So I've been spending the last two minutes. I haven't heard a word you've said. I've just been thinking about this passage and whether or not I agree with that interpretation. Not sure I do. I. <laughs> oh, my God. I have like 12 or 15 other ones if you want them. <laughs> I, I believe that <laughs> it's a really good question. I and, you know, I, I would hope that someone at my point in life would have a more reflective answer, a more strategic approach than I probably do. I think the first thing that I start from is, are there controversies or places where I feel like I can help? Like, that's just a rubric that I have decided that I would use over the years. Can I help? Does what someone is thinking about fit with my learning, with my aptitude? 
And is there an issue out there that I can contribute to in a way that others might not be able to contribute to? I've always felt like in the grand pantheon of the internet, the possibility of redundancy is just extraordinary. Like it's, it's so easy for everyone to just say the same thing. And that's actually valuable if you want to build a career doing that. Like that's, you know, it's a good way to to gain an audience is to say what everyone else is saying in one way. But a lot of times it just doesn't help and it's not the sort of thing that I could contribute that would be distinctive. So as a rubric for determining when and where to weigh in on an issue, those have been some of the things that I've thought about. In terms of methodologically, how I think about it, I do think, I mean, I'm, I'm an evangelical Christian and I have taken as my lodestar a line from Oliver O'Donovan, a a Protestant Anglican moral theologian, who says something like, it's the task of Christian ethics to not change the tone of our voice away from the good news in addressing how people should live. So when you're doing ethics, you want to speak about ethics with the tone of bringing good news. And that ties me to approaching political, public, ethical questions. Like it, it, it puts limits on the way in which I can do that, that I think are pretty strict. I've got to figure out how I can address the matter of controversy in a way that sounds like good news, I think, for everyone involved, which means that in a deeply polarized and divided environment, one thing that I will try to do is find surprising points of contact with people that I otherwise deeply disagree with, in part because I want to persuade them to bring them into how I'm seeing things. But even if I don't persuade them all the way, I want them to see that I'm reasonable and I want to uh, show the world that I see that certain aspects that they think are reasonable as well, even while I think they're deeply wrong about fundamental questions. And that's a that's a really hard task. So like that doesn't get down to, to sources in terms of what I'm using when I'm doing, you know, writing in public, in part because I don't I don't know that I divide the work of public theology up that way. Like, I feel like what I'm just doing is theology in public. Like, I'm just writing what I would write using all the sources that I would write, you know, an academic paper with, but writing it at a different level, but just doing that with a very different audience. So I'm not sure that the the work of public theology is its own distinct methods or sources. I think it's probably just doing good theology in public and allowing others to listen in and doing it in a way that's attentive to the fact that there are others who are dis- who disagree, but just saying what one would say otherwise. I want to pick up on, on something you mentioned. So you're a theologian, you're an evangelical Christian. One thing that I find both frustrating, but also really interesting and an opportunity when people think about the tradition that I'm coming from is your average Joe on the street in America doesn't really have an inkling of what the Jewish intellectual tradition is or what it looks like. And to the extent they do, you know, the root of it 
the Talmud, like, it's just a synonym for, like, reasoning people don't like, like Talmudic reasoning, right? So, <laughs> so one of, you know, so I, I find it frustrating that people just have no idea, even though it's so crucial to the foundation of the American Republic and so forth. But it's also an amazing opportunity to kind of walk people through what that tradition looks like, what are some of the milestones. So one question that I myself have often had is there's kind of like the evangelical Christian you see on TV, which if Orthodox Jews you see on TV is any guide probably bears little to no resemblance to actual <laughs> evangelical Christians. Um, in the case of Orthodox Jews, the theory seems to kind of be just like slap some side locks on a 25 year old hipster from Brooklyn and call them Hasidic, <laughs> but whatever. But one question that I've had is what's the evangelical intellectual tradition? Like, I know there's no way for you to cover this in like, a quick answer. But if you had to kind of, for an outsider like me, but someone who sees the role that this community plays in American life and and is interested in kind of its vision for the public square, what's the evangelical intellectual tradition? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, there's a, a book that I think just reached its 25th anniversary and they redid an issue of a Mark Knowles, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which opens with a really provocative sentence, something like the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't one. Um, <laughs> you know, evangelicals have for decades been derided as anti-intellectual, as not having much of uh, an intellectual tradition that would be distinctly their own, which is a bit weird because when I look at global evangelicalism and I think about its origins, I think, well, I, I got John and Charles Wesley on my side and, you know, John Wesley, he's an Oxford man, you know, <laughs> like you can forgive him that if you're opposed to Oxford just constitutionally, but you have to at least acknowledge the guy's got some learning in him and many of the earliest evangelicals were extremely learned. You know, in the in the state, someone like Edwards has been taken up into evangelical context and used sort of mediates a kind of Puritanism informed theology, you know, reformed theology, but does so in ways that many evangelicals who are more reformed gravitate towards. Like there's an evangelical wing that's more reformed that has a sort of significant intellectual tradition here in the States. But it's somewhat buried. I mean, in part because evangelicalism has a strong populist character to it, has a strong populist character, and it has a strong romantic background. I don't think it's an accident. So the Keswick movement is a movement of evangelicals in England um, that takes shape right around the same time that Wordsworth is doing his thing. And it's called the Keswick School of Theology because there was an annual conference that happened, I think, even into the 70s, might still be happening now, uh, where evangelicals in the UK would gather in Keswick, which is in the Lake District, which is like, I don't know, 15 miles from Dove Cottage, where Wordsworth is writing, right? Which I think is not an accident. Like evangelicalism as a sentimentalized, emotive response to an industrialized society, right? Like as a kind of religion of the heart, it has distinctive emphases that go in a kind of sentimentalist direction. And that makes the cognitive side a challenge. And it makes passing that intellectual side down across a tradition even harder. I once wrote an essay for Comment Magazine on whether or not there can be a tradition of evangelical political theology. And I, I answered yes, but... 
the reason for the answer, yes, or the difficulty with the answer is that evangelicalism is at its best when it's a, an emphatic movement inside of other ecclesial, like actual ecclesiastical bodies, like the Church of England, where, you know, evangelicals are have a certain characteristic expression of the Church of England, and so have kind of continuity across generations that they can develop resources and hand them down through that type of structure. Without that, what you have in the states, where it's predominantly Baptists who don't have any sort of larger structure that's handing things down as well across generations, is you really do struggle to have a, a real tradition, and that just impairs your intellectual uh, resources over time. It really does undermine them. So in one respect, you've asked a really hard question for me because as an evangelical, the the problem of the evangelical mind is something that I've wrestled with since I started thinking about my evangelical commitments as an undergraduate many years ago. And I've continued to wrestle with those in public. And I think it's still possible to be an evangelical, but you have to acknowledge that there are certain emphases or aspects of the movement that do make the intellectual work difficult over generations. I, I want to even probe a little further because you're not just an evangelical Christian. You're also a preacher's kid. You're digging deep. I don't <laughs> I don't even remember telling you that. I'm just invested in the Matt Anderson story. Listen, wow. as, as a preacher's grandkid, I totally get it. I'm so curious because I get this question all the time. So I'm going to pose it to you as a grandkid. But what did you learn from being a preacher's kid? Don't never become a preacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing. Totally. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> I remember going to my grandfather telling him, I'm thinking about going to the rabbinate. He's like, oh, in, <laughs> in, in an extremely Joe Bluth voice, I made a huge mistake, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. No, I mean, like, I learned so much more than that. I got a, I got a, a front row seat on a small evangelical church where my dad was pastor for the bulk of my life growing up, 17 years or so. And, you know, there were points at which that almost turned me off from Christianity because I saw things that were done mostly to my dad by that church that made me extremely angry. But at the same time, you know, I, I watched good people support me through college. You know, like when people sort of rail against the evangelical mind and say the evangelicals don't have an intellectual tradition, I, I like it's very hard for me to take that seriously because people in that small community, uh, working class community, in a, like one of the state of Washington's poorest county, helped. They, they wrote me checks so that I could go to college. Not huge checks, but something that would just alleviate the burden. And that's extraordinary to me um, as someone who wow. uh, grew up in that sort of context. And I, you know, like the, the kind of politicization that we see happening within evangelical context now, that was not at all my experience. I, I had a very unusual experience within an evangelical church. They... I'm sure people talked about politics and we had a flag at the front, but there was none of the pathologies that we see highlighted over and over and over again by people who really dislike a certain form of religious politics. There was quiet, faithful uh, work to care for our neighbors in ways that I thought were, were just generally very healthy. So I I feel like I had a great view of a complicated religious expression that, like any religious expression, 
I think it is was ambivalent, right? Like there are aspects for which of it for which I'm deeply grateful, and aspects that I think like, eh, could have done without that part. And that just seems like a feature of living within a, a sinful world. So, you know, I don't have I don't have the sort of hang-ups or bitterness about my evangelical upbringing that many of my peers have had. And I and I talk with them and I just think like, oh, that's it's kind of weird. It's really hard for me to, to actually resonate with what you went through. And I feel badly that my evangelical peers went through that, but that was that was just nothing like what I went through. Before we shift gears into some specific questions, I want to actually now kind of fast forward in the in the story and talk about the second way that I encountered you. The first way was just by chance in my full glory, just stuffing, you know, stuffing my face. But the second, <laughs> the second instance was through your podcast, which I love, uh, Mere Fidelity. You were pretty early on in the game of digital publications with Mere Orthodoxy, podcasting with Mere Fidelity, and you guys have built up a really, a really uh, sizable and, and awesome and dedicated audience. Substacks, newsletters, Patreon, like you were pretty, pretty early on and innovative in digital media and doing really interesting stuff around faith, the public square. How do you think about the perils, pitfalls, but also the really amazing opportunities of new media and digital media for bringing great conversations about faith into the wider society? Yeah, it's a great question. I was early. Thank you for pointing that out, especially when it came to like founding mere orthodoxy. People have no idea because it's just ancient history now, but <laughs> the way back in 2005. That's so early, by the way. I, I started it, I think, in 2003. And in wow. 2005, I organized the first gathering of Christian bloggers, quote unquote, and it was this was so new that the AP sent a reporter to cover it. And <laughs> it got like I got quoted in the London Times and, you know, like Australia was, you know, repeating this quote from this AP reporter. And it's just it's totally forgotten now. But I love those subcultures like in the Orthodox Jewish world. There's like Gil Student in the Hirurim blog. There's the Svarim blog. There's Josh Uter, like all these names that. It almost feels like being into Nirvana before they got big. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, and I never got big, so I mean that's the that's that's the one shortfall. Um, and I, you know, it actually like there are certain strategic decisions that I made along the way to not get big, as big as I might have. I took long breaks. I left the internet for basically entirely for a solid year and a half around 2015. Or so I left for a, a solid year and a half. And and many people counseled me not to. They said, look, you built these things. Why would you leave the internet for a year and a half? The pitfalls of it are that it really does truncate deep thought. Like if you immerse yourself in online spaces, it's really hard to get out of the essay size thoughts, even the blog post size thoughts, the Twitter size thoughts, to have book length size thoughts thoughts. And I found myself over many years, I think, stultifying my intellectual and spiritual formation because I was spending too much time engaged in media that were short form. So I think that's that's been the major danger for me, which I like, if anyone who's read me at Mere Orthodoxy who hears this might laugh because I gained a reputation my last couple of years for writing it 
of writing at Mere Orthodoxy for writing four or 5,000 word yeah. essays. You know, like I would just churn them out in part because I wanted to resist reducing thoughts to short forms. There's, it's part of the, the difficulty if you're going to take the methodology that I think that I have and try to sound like you're offering good news and find points of contact. I'm not Ross Douthat. I can't do that in 800 words. And I think very few people can. And you just end up, it's much easier to do it over the course of 3,000 words. So the form of the media makes doing good work really, really challenging. Podcasting has changed that because podcasting allows for longer form. It's a different medium. But written word, it's really hard to do it in the short form context. What has podcasting done for you, though? How has that presented a new opportunity? Like, I find it a totally, it's even hard to explain. It's such a different genre. It is. And I, I will say, like, I think the opportunities of the internet are incredible. I got into it early because the opportunity seemed too good. And the opportunity for me was, you know, it was a chance I wanted to, in certain respects, reframe how people thought about evangelicals to show that there was an intellectual side to the movement that we were able to have and to depict an evangelicalism that was robustly theologically conservative, even politically conservative, but which uh, wasn't beholden to the immediate party politics in the way in which many evangelicals in public have been. The opportunity to to reach different people and to have a different outlook was just too good to pass up. And when it comes to podcasting, you know, it's for me, it's an act of friendship. Like I like the guys that I've been talking to for so long and it's a safer medium in some ways, right? Like we can work out thoughts on the fly. And the thing is, you can say really controversial things inside a podcast and people don't actually roast you in the same way as if you were to say the same thing on Twitter because they hear the tone of your voice, because they can tell it's an exploratory thought, you know, like the medium just allows for a a degree of flexibility that I think written prose does not, except for newsletters. This is where I think actually newsletters, one of the great draws, it's the informal nature. And the fact that it goes into people's email inbox gives it a an intimate quality that actually diminishes the need for professionalism and allows for a greater margin of error, which I think is is really valuable. New- newsletters, it's not surprising to me that they would take off as podcasting has become so popular because they are kind of like the written form of podcasting, I think. Oh, I like that. I've never thought about that. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, it's funny you say that. One of my good friends, Leo Leibovitz, host of the, one of the hosts of the Unorthodox pod, shouts to the Unorthodox crew. We love you guys. Uh, Liel, who uh, really helped conceptualize this podcast, the advice that he gave me from day one and consistently reinforced was that what makes a really good podcast, at least of the, the format that I'm doing, is you want to create a vibe where, where it's as if you and your guest are sitting at a table in a restaurant and your listeners are total strangers at the table next to you who can't help overhearing. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, this sounds like an interesting conversation. Before you know it, you're kind of just like leaning back and and like ignoring the person at your table because you want to listen in. Like that's the vibe. Yeah. It's, it's hard to do, but I feel like as thank God this this podcast has found real success, it's, it's because you've been able to cultivate that conversation between friends that other people feel like they want to listen into. And that's what you guys have nailed. 
Yeah, well, thank you. That's really kind. I mean, it's it's encouraging to hear because we just recorded an episode yesterday in which Alistair and I devolved into shouting at each other. So, <laughs> you know, like it's <laughs> that's the podcast where it's the conversation across the table at a restaurant where everyone's looking at them wondering, are they okay? Should we intervene? <laughs> you know, like this is really awkward for everyone else in the room because, um, which doesn't happen often for us, but, but it, it, it got testy between us. Um, I think that's a great metaphor for thinking about podcasts and it's th- that that level of intimacy it really is unparalleled and the voice medium just it allows it in a way that no other type of medium does and i think actually like there's something about video podcasting that takes that away oh i totally agree like in the same way that like listening to baseball on radio is different than watching baseball on tv there's there's a weird sort of higher level of intimacy that comes when you just hear the voices because you have to sort of imagine and fill out the rest of it on your own whereas video is just overdetermined which is why everyone should just read books and quit Netflix. Sorry, had to get it in. It's my tagline. Oh my God, hot takes. I love it. I'm so excited. Uh, on the last episode, which was amazing, Chaisar Oppenheim, uh, shouts to Chaisar. Everyone should listen to that. The hot take was people should spend way more time than they do in cemeteries. And this one is get rid of Netflix and read books. I love it. So good. Oh man. Oh no, but I'm, but I'm down for the last one too. I was in Argentina a month ago and toured in Buenos Aires, toured just this astonishing cemetery that had tons of mausoleums. It was wild. I've never been to, to one like it. You know, it was like one city block, super compact. It was amazing. So I'm, I'm done with that take too. So to shift gears now to some kind of specific issues. So the first piece that I ever published in the journal First Things was an essay making the Jewish case for pronatalism, right? So the idea that one of the keys to a healthy, happy, dynamic society is promoting families and supporting childbearing. And this can be done through both policy and wider cultural values. And the week after I published it, I go to a conference and I sit down at a table with somebody and I mention to them, uh, that I just wrote an article on pronatalism and that person was like, oh my God, I have so many thoughts about pronatalism. And I'm like, oh my God, I guess I picked the right topic. Even like random people at tables, like the first person I talked to is obsessed with pronatalism. Turned out that person was you and you are like actually really, <laughs> you've pub- you published a great deal on the thought really deeply about pronatalism unusually. <laughs> yeah. In an unusual way. So can you walk us through as coming from your particular perspective I'm also a big particularist, so I published the case from the Jewish side. How do you think about pronatalism? What does it do? Why is it good? Yeah, good. I mean, we did meet at BYU in Provo, Utah, so your odds of sitting across a pronatalist were actually pretty good. So we just got to acknowledge that. That's true. (laughs) Uh, I do. I mean, I, I do think about this a lot. And at some point, we've got to talk through some of the differences between Jewish ways of doing this and potentially Christian ways of doing this. Because oh, that's such a good episode on its own. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole lot there that we probably don't have time to go into, unfortunately. Um, I start from the standpoint, and this is just going to like tell me I'm wrong on this, but Genesis 1.28 is not a command, that it's actually like a blessing And it seems like where that gets alluded to or used throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible is like 
described in terms of blessing terms. And from my view, like procreation is the temporal display of God's life and his commitment to life within a people. It's the sign of his blessing on a people. And to be pronatalist is has to be ordered for me in the first moment towards God, right? Like it's got to be a response to the revelation of God. It's like the, the first commandment has to be the first commandment for pronatalism to be a proper pronatalism for it to emerge properly. Because otherwise I get really worried that there are all sorts of other implications that would come along with the pronatalism to which I would want to say no. Right. And this is where, like, the theological thinker who I think about this a lot with is Karl Barth. Mm. And I'm sort of thinking about this against Karl Barth in certain ways. Barth's not a pronatalist. No one thinks of him that way. And no one thinks of him that way because he's got really sort of sharp claims against ethno nationalism. And there are lots of great reasons when you're Karl Barth to be opposed to ethno-nationalism <laughs> because, you know, like when you're writing in 1951 in Switzerland and you got kicked out of Germany because you refused to say, to make a loyalty oath to Adolf Hitler, right? Like that's Barth's context and that was Barth's story. And so he's not a pronatalist. And He's not because of those ethno-nationalists, because it's intertwined with blood and nation. And I'm I'm really nervous about that. I'm with Bart on being really reluctant about that. And that makes me think that any pronatalism, it really has to, like in the first place, not be about natalism. It can't be about babies. It has to be about God. And it has to be about fidelity, conformity, responsiveness to God's life. And the natalist emergence, the, the the gift of life comes out of that for a people such that there's a certain way in which I think the absence of fertility sociologically across generations can be regarded as a providential mark of divine judgment on a people, right? Like it's a part of a kind of curse. And that makes me really popular at every party I go to. <laughs> Remember what I said about like saying controversial things and not getting roasted when they're in the middle of the podcast? We're just going to test that out. Let's uh, By the way, I think the the one time I really I really felt bad about doing this, but did it anyway and it turned out well was we had I had Trey Stevens on the podcast, who's a who's a VC, you know, at Founders Fund Silicon Valley and I sort of said, you know, like for the Silicon Valley culture is so focused on building the future and yet the birth rate in Silicon Valley is quite low, lower than your average, first of all, lower than replacement level, and it's lower than the American average. That struck me as strange. And I remember not thinking before I asked him the question, like, wait, does he have kids? Yeah. <laughs> now, for, now, fortunately, uh, as he pointed out on the podcast, well, I have my above replacement level kids. So that was at least good. <laughs> yeah. But like, it's an interesting question. Like, really, it's, it's a matter of societal direction. Like, it's really investing in the future in the same way that building out battery technology is, even even just at that simple a level. That's right. And one reason why I really want to tie it to God and to make it a mark of divine blessing rather than command is because I think there's lots of cases where people don't have kids. And I actually think they're not 
necessarily violating a command, right? And there are limits, I think, real sharp limits on what people should do to bring children into the world if they are not given children as a gift. And so for me, the the, the description of, you know, procreation as a divine blessing builds in lots of limits that are, I think, pastoral, therapeutic for people who do not have children and who would want children. So, you know, that's that's just one of the knock-on effects of the way in which I've I've talked about this. So how do you think about the role of peoples and nations, right? Are they worthy institutions? Are they bad ones? Are they both? And I don't mean in the sense of, like, nationalism, although we could totally go there, But I just mean in terms of thinking about in a larger view of the world, there are institutions like like the PTA or a bowling club that needn't a priori be bad or good. You can kind of just take them as a given. Right. And the Bible and the Bible in many ways is reactive literature. Right. It's it begins with a journey from Mesopotamia. It continues with a journey from Egypt. Right. The Bible is in media rest. It's not like creating first principles in the way that, you know, Socrates or Plato or Aristotle would do. So you can kind of take things as a given and say, well, we they can be bad or good and we can react to them. So are nations and peoples like that? Are they good things and we should want them, even though we should want to curb the bad things that come from those things? Or are they just wholly bad and we should wish to do away with them? Yeah, I mean, there are two different categories, at least in contemporary parlance. You know, when we talk about nations, we think about things like borders. It's very hard to think about a nation without thinking about a border. I take them as a part of peoples as a kind of inevitable outgrowth or consequence of human action. Like, it just seems to be the case that as humans procreate and generate families, there are certain norms of how those families expand and grow over time. And there's invariably going to be limits on the boundaries of communities because of geography, if nothing else, because of food supply, et cetera. And those limits are going to form people groups over time that are different than other people groups. I mean, there, there's an impetus or an impulse, I think, towards exogamy, towards marrying outside of your family. But there's also degrees of kinship and similarity that people's groups have over time that if allowed to reify, if allowed to harden or ossify too much can become really problematic. And you can't just sort of presuppose that one's own people group are the only people on earth, right? And this is why I think like subordinating people's family's kin to the first commandment is so essential for everyone because that's the ultimate relativizer of family identity of people identity, but it's also the ultimate equalizer between all other types of peoples, right? We are all beneath the one God. And as such, we can't have claims to superiority for us over other peoples. So I'm comfortable with peoples and I'm actually pro nations in terms of borders because, you know, one of the things that modern borders do is they allow for the formation of people groups that aren't bound by blood. And this is, I think, a really underappreciated feature of borders, right? They're, they're disruptive in many ways. If you go to El Paso um, on the, the Texas-Mexico border, it's a weird place because you have people who have lived there for generations who have family just across the border is the uh, Ciudad uh, Juarez, um, right? Like they're, they're one family group 
divided, is spread across two countries with a border running the middle. So borders do divide, but in dividing, they also allow for new types of fellowship, kinship, identity that transcend family bonds. And I think that's that's a really valuable thing that I'm not prepared to get rid of. So yeah, I'm not sure whether I take them as given in terms of like they're built into the structure of creation or whether I regard them as inevitable extensions beneath God's providence of human action. I think I think probably the latter. And so they could go away and other types of human action could create other sorts of community, but that seems very hard for me to imagine. Easier to imagine with nations because we haven't always had borders in the way that we have. Much harder to imagine with peoples. So one thing you said that really kind of piqued my imagination is what sort of human action do nations or peoples allow us to imagine and implement that we might not have had otherwise or might be more difficult to do under other circumstances? And I think there, it might be helpful to think about nations not necessarily as conferring benefits on people, although they can do that, or conferring superior status on any particular people, although that you you might, you know, as an insider, you might imagine they do that. I actually think that what nations could be and what they are, at least in, in the Bible, as far as I can tell, is they're actually, you could think of them almost in a video game sense as like, this is how you get quests. What nations do is they give you missions. So... There are certain truths about the universe. I'm kind of thinking this through on the fly, but there are certain truths about the universe that are morally relevant for everybody equally, right? Creation. Human beings are given the divine image. That impacts everybody equally and universally and and in the same exact way and identically. But then there are certain experiences you can have or maybe sins that you can commit that are morally central for the people that experience them. So, for example, in the Bible... The Israelites experience the exodus and that the exodus from Egypt that confers certain responsibilities upon them that you wouldn't have reasoned to from first principles. Right. So, you know, the fact that every single person in the household has to rest on the Sabbath, you might not have reasoned your way towards a Sabbath of that nature without the story of the exodus. And the Bible certainly only ever presents it in the, as a consequence of the experience in Egypt or idol worship. The fact that the Israelites are so enmeshed for such a long time and in such specific ways, not just in idol worship in general, although that too, but also they're tempted by particular gods, by Baal and by Marduk and so forth. Those temptations have real implications for the Israelite story. So if you think about America in that context, you might actually be able to draw some practical conclusions from that. Like, for example, you know, it might be that America has a particular responsibility to atone for the sin of anti-black racism. And maybe maybe other types of racism, while bad, are kind of less like historically resonant than that one, because that's kind of like a particular sin that this nation has. Right. I feel like Lincoln kind of felt that way. And he talks yeah. and he seems to make that argument in the second inaugural. Right. Is it possible then that that nations maybe supply you with missions and that your history, your story actually are supplied to you by your nation people. It could also be like by your family or by other kind of groups like that. But particularistic groupings is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to think about it. My advisor, Nigel Bigger, we had a conference for him at Oxford and he gave a paper that was based on, it used the line from an Auden poem 
which I just can't get out of my head. Honor the fate that you are. Ooh. And it is this is a great line, right? Honor the fate that you are. And if you think about your particularity, your location within a people, that's the fate that you are. And you have to honor that, which means you can't escape it. You've got to do good by it. And you the only good that you can do in this world is in one sense through it. So the, the idea of nations giving you missions is exactly right. Like part of your vocation, your calling, the responsibility that you have and the good that you are called to do in this world is mediated by the fact that you found yourself in this particular people group at this particular time, and you cannot discern the good except in that type of context. Now, it might not mean that you absolutely have to remain in that particular place in time, right? You might be called to migrate away, but even as you migrate away from that place, you carry it with you, right? Like you can't escape being from where you are. You know, like there's a, a line from Richard John Newhouse, who's founder of First Things. At the end of one of his books, he says something like, when I meet God, I think I will meet him as an American. And I think that's exactly right from my standpoint. Like there's just no getting away from the fact that I was born in Canada and that when I meet God, I will meet him as a son of the British Empire. And I will thank God for that, you know. Uh, long may our queen live. Um, like, I just want her to keep going. Just go, go, go. Um, we have no proof that she'll ever stop. I mean... I know. <laughs> like, like it's hilarious that Silicon Valley is like, we're trying to figure out life extension. And, like, and the queen's like, you just be the queen. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Have everyone do everything for you and yeah. you'll live forever. Um, so, you know, like, I, but I do think, like, that sense of particularity, it's inescapable. It shapes our identity and it shapes our good and there's no escaping it. When we think about religion in public spaces or the public square. So we're at this kind of phase of American political thought now where you have one camp that feels very much that religious people in the United States should seize the means of cultural production and and sort of uh, impose, maybe theocracy is probably the wrong word, we should be uh, we should be a religious country because that's what we are. And then you have another side of the debate, which feels like just let the chips fall where they may. There isn't really any like particular religion, religious vision of society at all. And all we we can and should do is just kind of like play the game of liberalism and we'll be fine. I confess I don't like either option, but it's hard to think of a third way. How do you think of this? I don't like either option either. You know, I'm reluctant to embrace the reclamation projects that are very popular within both certain strands of Roman Catholicism, but also certain strands of Protestantism right now. You know, Oliver O'Donovan, who's a theologian who I've already mentioned, he, um, he has a book called Desire of the Nations, where he defends the Christendom idea, or he doesn't he at least appropriates it or tries to understand it on its own terms. And and that's about as sympathetic as I can get to it, right? Like the way he does it is he basically says, look, if Christendom emerges, it emerges as the fruit of other work 
that the church did. It's not a deliberate programmatic strategy to take over the halls of government. It's not like necessarily the early Christians were thinking, if only we can get to Constantine, right. then then we're going to be okay, right? Like, whatever else you make of Constantine. I think his conversion to Christianity is legit. Like, so I'm, I'm a weirdo in that way. But <laughs> his conversion and everything that followed from that, m- much of which is very mixed, right? And certainly very bad for Jews in many <laughs> respects, right? But for Christians, it's it's obviously very beneficial. And, you know, like much of the good that comes from that comes from the accidental work of God rather than a deliberate programmatic strategy, or so it seems to me. And so I'm really reluctant to embrace rebuilding a Christian America as a project, in part because it just seems fruitless to me. So there's a line in the New Testament where Jesus is talking about uh, demons, and it's in Matthew, and he says, the demon leaves and the house is set in order, but eventually the demon goes and gets seven other friends, his demon friends comes back and leaves the house in a worse condition than it was at the beginning. Which is to say that within Christian theology, there's a difference between what happens at the beginning when people encounter God and what happens when they reject God. And apostasy is worse than what came at the beginning, which is why I think like a lot of Christian comparisons to early Rome are actually a mistake. Like if they're, if they're like, their own press is right about the way in which things are, then what they're actually headed towards is something that would be worse for the Christian faith than what would be at the beginning. Now, does that mean necessarily that, you know, there would be boiling Christians alive? No, not necessarily. But in terms of the the cultural pressure, the the stigma, I don't know. You know, that's one way of reading that particular passage. So I don't like the reclamation projects, the liberal projects, the sort of like, we just got to be nice to everyone and allow people to do what they want and treat everyone with respect. They seem to me at the end of the day, kind of bland because they don't really acknowledge, I think, the deep differences in the moral visions that we have and the deep problem of living together as those who share those those disagreements. I also think they end up discounting too much the need for religious commitments to preserve and sustain liberalism over time. Again, O'Donovan in that same book, Desire of the Nations, has a line where he he says, a liberal society is a society that's marked by mercy and judgment. And without mercy, it, liberalism seems just entirely unsustainable to me. And the difficulty from my standpoint is mercy is not learned on non-theological grounds, right? Like it's not necessarily a virtue that can be grasped 
absent some account of forgiveness and its social and political salience. And that, I think, is the, you know, Judeo-Christian tradition that bequeaths that to the world. And absent that, I don't think you get mercy and I don't think you get liberalism. I just, it just doesn't seem tenable to me, at least over generations. While you might have experiments here and there, it doesn't seem sustainable as a cultural or civic project. I'm not sort of standard liberal that you would see these days. If I'm a liberal, I'm a liberal uh, who would thinks that the only liberalism that you can have is one that's responsive to the revelation of God. Like in my case, I'm a Christian liberal. And um, absent that, you're going to have problems everywhere. What's the next big project that you're working on? You've written at least two fantastic books. Uh, one of them is where I got the preacher's kid insight from. You've written two fabulous books. You founded a digital publication, Mere Orthodoxy. You created, along with some other awesome folks, a fabulous podcast. You now are the proprietor of an excellent newsletter. I'm running out of adjectives. However, (laughs) what's the next project that you're working on? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, I also was behind through Baylor, through my work at Baylor, 100 Days of Dante. I should say that too, which was also... Oh yeah, oh my God. Wait, can you talk about that? It's so good. Yeah, I mean, this was a cool project. It was maybe one of my best projects. It's an online resource, 100 videos, one for every canto of the Divine Comedy. And we had 15,000-ish people read through it over the course of a year, getting, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So you can sign up and get an email in your inbox every Monday, Wednesday, Friday and read the Divine Comedy over the course of kind of 100 days, not 100 linear direct days. But so that was a cool project. Um, I'm rewriting uh, my dissertation for a publication, which is on the pro and antinatalism stuff. So that's that's in the works. I'm actually rewriting the second book that I wrote um, on questioning. They've agreed to republish that. And I I thought I was just going to like updated a little and turns out no i'm gonna rewrite that sucker almost from the ground up so (laughs) it's really good so that's happening you know my next big intellectual project and i've i've sort of teased this in various places is going to i think be on honor and reputation there just there just isn't a lot of within the world of like christian moral theology there's actually more in uh, Jewish theology. You sent me a book by your colleague, or we talked, I think, about a book by your colleague on the ethics of gossip. Yes. Rabbi Danielle Feldman. Shouts to Rabbi Feldman. <laughs> yeah. Which is a great book. I learned a lot from that book. But there's there's very little within Christian moral theology these days on reputation as a category. And it's shocking to me because reputation is one of those things that we deal with on a daily basis. We make decisions about pe- people based on their reputation. We make decisions about ourselves based on preserving our reputation. Like, And, and the challenges within the internet age are really paramount. And also the challenges that we've seen around like Me Too and some of that sort of movement are just astonishing. The whole, I I can't believe I'm, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, right? Is about defamation. That's a great point. I haven't heard anyone make that point. That's a good point. It's it, like defamation, reputation as a category. It's just so central to a person's well-being. And we were all enraptured, like entranced with this trial around defamation because everyone was trying to sort out whose reputation 
is being impugned here? Like whose reputation is being saved? Now it turns out you get to that sort of point in the trial and everyone's reputation is impaired, right? Like everyone's damaged by virtue of being in that trial. You would never think given the extremely weighty human issues that were at stake in that story, you'd never think that the whole thing would turn on reputation. Yeah. As opposed to violence, physical or otherwise, as opposed to abuse, physical or otherwise, like it turned on defamation. That's a fascinating point. That's right, because reputation is real capital, right? Um, and we've we've moved it into a civil context, but it was the case historically through much of the history of the West, if we can use that term, that reputation was actually a a legal category that had real civil opportunities or penalties attached to it. To be defamed was to be deprived of real civil liberties. You could not take others to trial in the Middle Ages if you were subject to defamation because they valued reputation so much. It was so central to their communities and to people's sense of well-being. And it's still, I think, that central. It's just gone beneath the covers. We just don't think about it explicitly as much as previous generations did. So partially, my next big project is to to try to think through an ethics of reputation and a theological ethics of reputation, trying to understand what, what role it plays within the economy of God's salvation, both in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, and then also what we should do in light of that today. That is amazing. Matt, thank you so much for being here. This is awesome. This was fantastic. Yeah, I, I, it's been an honor to come on. I, I, I love this. I want to come back. There's nothing more gratifying, for me at least, than encountering a person who takes their faith and tradition seriously. In part because, as Matt said, Liberalism, which I think is one of the most valuable innovations in human history, is basically unworkable, maybe even incoherent without that. You can think of liberalism like the rules of chess. They're intricate, sophisticated, beautiful in their own way, but without a telos, without a goal, without an objective, they're all for naught. I mean, what's the point of sliding a rook or a bishop majestically across the board if you don't know or care or have any method for knowing or caring that the eventual goal is to capture the king? So both in principle and at the margins, I'm so glad and grateful for people like Matt who show us what it means to take our most deeply held values seriously, deploy them respectfully and with humility, and ultimately try our best to build a worthy, virtuous, kind, and caring society. Uh, anyway, thanks for joining us today. This has been a total blast. And while you're here, please be awesome and head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else to get your podcast and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. 
For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Studios.com.